Hello, and welcome to episode eight of Grief Bacon. It's been a minute. Um, I'm so delighted that Eric Hanberg is back for this episode. We kind of pick up the conversation where we left it off last time in episode three um, due to a very unfortunate lingering cough from a winter cold. Um, I had to edit out a good chunk of conversation we had about the ways that the political situation in the U.S. uh, reflect um, the challenges of the patriarchy um, and probably a few other things as well. But uh, you'll forgive me, won't you? So anyway, enjoy the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And as always, very interested in hearing your feedback. Happy listening. Okay. Welcome back, Eric. Thank you for having me back. I'm so pleased that you're back. It feels like we just spoke like a few weeks ago, but it's been months well, and then there's been other episodes that you've done and just conversations that that triggered on my end. And it's interesting stuff. I mean, it's definitely not something you can just cover in one episode. No, I also still have the hour and a half, other hour and a half of audio that I didn't post of our conversation. I feel, I feel like you post the best hour and a half. So. I think I did too. I think I did too. So um, my first question for you is, since our last conversation... Um, what kind of responses or feedback have you gotten about the podcast? I got one that that stood out. It was um, a friend of mine who listened and she was telling me about an experience that her husband had had that made her think about it as well. And, And the experience was, it was like a, if I'm understanding, remembering this correctly, it was like a corporate conversation like at a company trying to do better at their you know DEI initiatives or however corporate and government speak about things like this and he tried to in his way own you know like I'm the product of a sexist or a racist culture and I haven't always acted in you know in the way that I'd like to or however he presented this and then got in in the words of his wife you know uh taken down for being a racist and a sexist and by trying to share felt like he was driven out of the conversation Mm. and to me and 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 just and so my friend was kind of reflecting on that and her husband was reflecting on that my reflection on that it's really interesting like like I feel like everyone does this thing where like you hear someone say something in a certain way and you're like, Oh, that's a really good way to phrase it. And, you know, maybe it's like, uh, people do this with stand-up comedy a lot where they're like, you know, this comedian said something in this really provocative and interesting way. And then they try to say it and all the context is gone. And then they just look like, like they flub it or they look like sexist or racist or something because like the context is so important. And I kind of have been thinking about things like that. Like if you hear a speaker, a moderator, a panel, you know, someone who like in that context, you know, especially like a male, a white male, who's like, you know, I am, you know, but the product of a sexist and a racist culture and I'm trying to work on that. And, you know, it's all of these things. That's a different context than just saying like a sexist or a racist thing from your, your past. 
and I and it just made me think about like the performative nature of language in these situations. Like, I have this sense that progressive leaning, want to do good, want to be good in the world, white men like myself, like um, my friend's husband, are like looking for like how how do you go about this? How do you how do you own up to certain things? How do you acknowledge certain things? Um, and language is definitely the place to start. But then when someone is like, but you just said you're a sexist and a racist, it's like, they're, they're, what do you say next? Besides, like, you have to say, well, yes, like I just said that, but it's it's hard. And, and I I came away from it thinking about like, the performative nature of it and how much of this is performative like if you just speak in the right way you're going to be fine and then that was just a good example of like no that's not enough like but then at the same time if that's not enough and then you and then you know like if I were if it was me I could be like well you know as part of that I'm created a podcast network that has women and people of color as the majority of hosts and I'm doing this and I'm doing that then it just looks I'm like I'm defensive like and I'm not going to win that way either and I think the more I think about it it's that feeling of like winning that is part of the problem like like I want this person to think I'm like just think well of me <laughs> I feel like that's what it really comes down to is is that 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 people are looking for in these scenarios um so that's kind of my my reflection on that is is that 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 is at least when you're in spaces where there's men and women, that's one way men are trying to acknowledge it and also finding like it doesn't quite work. But at the same time, I don't want to dismiss the performative side of things because like how we act in public is important. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, like, like I think about, I remember um, someone a few years ago, you know, saying, I think it was in the language, early in the language wars around like they and them and things like that. And this person I was talking to, he remembered the language wars around changing stewardess to flight attendant. He's like, it was, you know, it was bitter and it divided people and it polarized people. And all of that is true. But at the same time, we call those positions flight attendants now. Like, like, like I recognize that it was difficult, but most people seem to have adjusted. Even the people who would have been upset still called police officers police officers and probably if they see a woman in uniform they don't call her a policeman um the hiring hr departments don't advertise for policeman so like we won that argument so why wouldn't we try to win this one so that that side of things like how we talk and how and language does really matter i think um but that's kind of my my opening my opening conversation starter so um, when you, as you bring this up, I'm curious, like, did you feel upon listening to the podcast that there was some of what you were saying or doing that was performative or just simply like it brought up this interesting conversation about like the nature of the nature of how these conversations almost invoke and require performance rather than genuine dialogue? That's interesting. Um, 
listening it wasn't listening to our conversation that made me think about that as much as listening to the conversation that you and marguerite had mm, you know yeah. like a month later yeah um where it made me really think about like how i was acting on that on the first one and 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 i mean i think one of the things that's interesting about listening to grief bacon is like you know that conversation with marguerite felt like you didn't have anyone listening like it could have just been someone listening that is so cool. i know and i and and i think this conversation is the same in the sense that like this is how i would be talking to you whether or not we were recorded or not but i would still have the like slightly awkward slightly stilted not because like it's just a really hard thing to talk about yeah and um, you're, you're um, presumably also being careful with me even though we're friends yes yeah. yes because i want you to think well of me <laughs> yeah know, well, like. you know what's interesting eric i asked the question because i got really great feedback about the episode with you but one bit of feedback that i got was that i was too gentle with you i got that uh i don't know i can't remember if you shared that with me or not but listening to you and marguerite talk about it without um a, a male in that conversation yeah. was different than how we talked about it. Well, it was, they really took me to task on it. And I, I've been thinking about it a lot. Was it Marguerite? Did Marguerite tell you that you need to? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to out Marguerite okay, here okay. now. Um, it, uh, Marguerite, I think, did tell me that, but she was the only one. I heard it from two okay. people. Okay. I, I'm pretty sure she was one of the people. But what was interesting about it was then it made me think about, I was like, okay, hmm, I, I didn't feel like I was being gentle with you, but, but I was aware that I was so afraid of scaring you or like, I was so grateful to have a man willing to talk to me about it in such an open way that I was like, you know, accommodating maybe is the, you know, I don't, rem I don't, I didn't think like, I was accommodating you, but I do realize what I said to this person. I said, well, I really love Eric. Like, I really like him. We're friends. Like, I love him. I respect him. And so, yeah, I guess I probably was like making choices to not alienate him because I don't want to alienate him because I want to have a real, com you know, I want to keep the conversation going. And that kind of brought up a debate about um, relevant to my conversation with Marguerite as like, mm -hmm. as a, as a white woman, most adjacent to the power that you hold, right? And someone who right. has, has your ear and has a relationship with you. Am I performing something when I'm, when I'm kind of, and to be clear, there was nothing you said that I feel like I let slide, right? But I, nothing that I'm aware of anyway. But, but it's interesting that two people who know me well remarked that I seemed like I was being a bit gentle with you. So it made me wonder, like, am I being performative or am I being accommodating or am I being like, am I, am I taking on a very important role that I think white women do have, which is to like make it possible for these conversations to happen with white men. So they're not, you know, inflicting them on black women. I think uh, <laughs> that is, that part is true, but it's also possible or likely that what am I trying to say here? That, you know, in the same way that, that you and Marguerite were talking about, you know, like how do women mentally s separate their husbands from 
you know, all men, you know, like, well, my husband's fine. You know, in the same way, our friendship probably makes it likelier that when I talk about like what I just talked about, like it's hard for a white guy to figure out how to go about going through this conversation, that you're not just going to say, well, you know, that's what women have been dealing with for decades, centuries. And, you know, why are you, you know, like, like it's not, it's not pushback exactly, but just more context, I guess. I don't know. Well, I think that to your point earlier about context, I think there is a lot of, I know you, I know your life. I know other things about you. Right. So I'm seeing you as a whole person. I think that's part of it. And not just a guy on a phone for 90 minutes. Right. But I do think the other thing and, and, um, this got really clear for me. I, I have been gnawing on this, but it got really clear for me after I just read this book called Why Does Patriarchy Persist? Have you seen this mm. book? No. So good. And it connects the persistence of patriarchy to the psychology of loss. And I'll explain it in a minute. But um, something I had said to Marguerite on that podcast, I think I've said it to her a million times and off the record, just is that like my experience is that women hold each other to a much higher standard than we hold men. And I I don't mean like about looks. I mean, like we expect more from our close female friends than we do for men because we've been so betrayed and, you know, uh, by men. And that, that, that was kind of my thing was like, we know better than to expect better from them. So we just expect that from each other, you know, like what we'll tolerate from a man, we would never tolerate from a close friend. But what I, what the connection I made when I was reading this book, it basically, basically says that the, you know, the agreement of the patriarchy is for boys is that they learn that um, they they cannot um, be who they are. They learn that being who they are is like, you know, sensitive, connected to their feelings, prioritizing, you know, relationship over success is not, is not going to be okay. So they learn to, to kind of suppress who they are. And what women learn in the agreement and the what women learn is that in order to have relationships in, in quotation marks, they have to forego relationship. So that if they want to have relationships with men or in the world, then they're going to have to really forego this um, the human tendency towards natural connection because the, the cost of knowing what they know is too high. So when I, when I was reading that, it occurred to me that, um, that like, I think, part of what was happening in that interact in the interaction that we had in the first podcast was that I saw someone like really trying very hard to, to be vulnerable and open and, and curious and like, a, and my response was to make it easier for my attempt was right. to make it easier for that to happen. But, but also my conditioning is that men are not, you know, there is, I do have a belief that men just don't do that, can't do that, aren't capable of it. So like any sign I see of it, I, I embrace quickly, right? Like I'm like, oh, look, there it is. Um, and I'm not saying that either one of those is correct or right. And again, I wasn't conscious of this in our conversation, but it's something that's come up since I've heard. Well, and, and again, you know, like I, I even saw some of that simply because of listening to how you and Marguerite talked made me reconsider how we talked about it. Yeah. Um, so I can, I can see where your friends were coming from. Yeah. So what, did... what do you want to say? That's 
<laughs> no, I, don't. I know. I'm like, do I need to be really hypervigilant to call you on stuff right now? Um, but it's not, I mean, I think, I think what's something has really shifted for me after reading this book in terms of me, the, the question that arose for me after our last conversation very clearly was as a, you know, a heterosexual cis white woman, like, what is my responsibility when it comes to, to um, men, to the patriarchy, not just men, but just to like the system itself. Right. Like what is my responsibility? Because I cannot claim that I am affected by it the same as many other people are. I'm the least harmed by it as, as, as people who identify as women go. And, I'm the, and I benefit the most from it as, as people who identify as women go. So like, what's my role? And um, something about the way the book laid this out, it was like when I thought about how um, the psychology of loss and, the, and the, the ways that we experience the patriarchy are almost identical. Um, it just gave me like a very clear, well, clear is maybe not the right word, but maybe some affirmation that, um, that I do have a responsibility to like speak truth to the people I love, of course. And I do have a responsibility to speak up for people. And I do have a responsibility, especially for like holding people accountable that, that I feel safe holding accountable. Um, and like, so yeah, you're someone that I feel perfectly safe holding you accountable because I know you're not going to, um, you know, attack me or hurt me or lash out. Um, I know if you're angry, I can handle it. You know, I like, <laughs> I know you're mature enough to have a conversation about being angry. Right. So like you're, you're an, you're an easy person for me to like trust that, that even if it's hard for you, that you can actually handle it because you've shown an interest in growth. Right. And you've already proven that you are, um, that you're interested in that. I think what I think what I was always getting stuck on was like the cost to women of speaking up is high, you know, and so because the cost in general is so high, I think it gets very difficult for us to accurately gauge um, in in moment to moment when the cost is actually not so high because it just feels mm. you know the general feeling is it costs a lot. Yeah, it's scary. Well, and and that's something that I've been, th one of the things that I've been thinking about and, and that story of my friend's husband relates to it is like part of what is happening is men are, you know, are experiencing a taste of that cost of talking about these things. And the temptation is to say, you know, well, shouldn't it be that no one feels these costs? Um, and, you know, let's live in a world where everyone, you know, can can say what they want and yada, yada, yada. But I think that practically speaking, that's unrealistic. And in many ways, you know, that was the world that, you know, the United States has very strong Freedom of Speech Act, you know, laws and, and, and yet still, you know, white men created a space where only their voices count. Um, and so I just have this sense that like, what I'm experiencing and what many men are experiencing is like a taste of this, like, like, 
talking about these these topics or being confronted with them when you don't even think you're talking about one of these topics but someone's like hey you know like check yourself is men learning this stuff and they just have to i mean what it comes down to is is that they just have to experience that i just have to experience that um and recognize that it's also only a taste of it does that make sense yeah absolutely i was just listening to a podcast today about the um empathy gap is that what it's called where but it's not about other people it's about ourselves we're like we all have an idea of how we would react in a certain situation right and we have very little empathy for what we were actually experiencing in that situation so like there was the example of um when Anita Hill was testifying against Clarence Thomas and um, some senator, I forget his name, asked her like, are you telling me that all this happened and then you moved with him to his next job? Like you had an opportunity to get out from under what you are claiming was his oppressive rule <laughs> and right. you, didn't, you, you went with him and, and her response was so like dignified and brilliant per always. You know, she said, I know that seems surprising to you. What may also be surprising to you is that is often the case in these situations and I can't really explain it, but I'm not the exception. I'm the rule in terms of that. How like we have this idea of how we're gonna react and how we're gonna, I would never do this or if that were the situation. They did this study where they basically asked women, like what would you do if you went in for a job interview? And the interviewer asked you these three questions, not one, not in a row, but um, over the yeah over the course and one of them was um, something about do you think you do you think men perceive you as attractive the other one was do you think women should wear a bra in the workplace I mean these were outrageous questions yeah and I'm forgetting what the third one was um, I'm forgetting but I mean outrageous and all the women were like oh my god 90% of the women said they would get up and leave that they would some some are like I would slap and you know like these women said how just how outraged they would be they give them a piece of their mind da, 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 right. da. well then they did the study and not a single woman got up and left only 30 percent um 100 percent of the women answered the questions and only 30 percent of the women sheepishly at the end of the interview said something to the effect of either why did you ask me that or what was the purpose that was of that question yeah. okay. or that was inappropriate. And so they were saying that like our idea of, of what we would do or how we would behave is completely disconnected from how we actually behave when we're in these heightened states. And they were saying that for women, the experience of being sexually harassed is a heightened fear state. We just go into fear. And so we, we, we don't behave the ways that we would behave um, that we think we would behave when we're not in that heightened state and we can think clearly through it. And um, <clears throat> the, this man that was talking about this was saying that um, part of what, part of an, a needed effort is that men need to understand that what they, what they think of as sexual harassment is probably not what women experience as sexual harassment. So basically that women are in a heightened state of fear around men a lot of the time. <laughs> Right. And, um, and so like one of the solutions was, you know, educating men about that. Um, and then there's this, uh, this one woman who apparently like 
trains women to have, she uses like military techniques to train women to have ready responses <laughs> for when men say things inappropriate around them because like they, we, we really know that it's very, very, very difficult for women to actually speak up and say something when, when I, something is inappropriate, said I, inappropriately. Ugh. I think that, that, that some, some context that, that that makes me think of this is like, I have, there was a friend, friend of a friend, I would say, who um, like I would observe, I observed at least once, maybe twice, but certainly once being like very rude to a server. And I didn't say anything and I didn't do anything. But if you had asked me in it, in advance what I would do if I saw someone say this that you know do this 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 to the server what would I do I probably would have said exactly what some of those women had said I mean like like there's there's a the human nature in some ways to be more think you're gonna you know you're gonna stand up for things that you know are right and then you get there and you feel the gray you feel like well you know this is a person and I don't want to alienate them and things like that um what 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 you know and the question would be for me well now that i've been through that and have done the rehearse you know like what would i say to that person if i'm confronted with it again what would i say to them um and would i actually follow through and i think the thing that i'm that i'm taking from what you're talking about because i do think that there's a lot of human nature in that is that women are feeling that a lot more often than I am. Does that, does that track? Yeah. Well, I, I think I'm, I'm saying two things. I am saying that, um, that it, it would be impossible for men to understand and know how many times a woman in their presence has not said something because she didn't feel safe. And he might think I'm a nice guy. I'm super safe. Right. We're friends. What are you talking about? But if, if, if she is in a heightened state of any kind, the way that she would normally react is might not be what happens. And it is not an indication. So basically, I guess I'm saying, I, do men realize that just because a woman has never confronted them about their behavior, right? that they don't, they haven't had problematic behavior. That's the first thing I'm saying. And then the second thing I'm saying is that I think the place that men can actually relate to this is when it comes to men having conversations with other men, like, because they're in a way, the risk of naming the risk of like, naming the patriarchy to another man is high. That, that is also a high risk situation. Um, I mean, it's a different type of risk than the risk that women have, but it doesn't mean it's not a risk. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's the risk of losing status. It's the risk of losing respect. It's the risk of losing power. Um, uh, you right. know, there, there's some kind of like secret, you know, agreement you've all made, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm referring to the collective you, you've all made that you're going to all like keep this thing going. <laughs> so if one of you is like, ah, should we keep this thing going? You know, we might get turned on you. Um, so, so I think that there's, um, it's a heightened, I guess what I'm saying is anytime these conversations are happening, if they're happening at all, uh, they're often not happening because of because of what, what I just said. But if they are happening, we are all then having them in an elevated heightened state where right. where our normal ways of reacting 
are not showing up. So I'm thinking about what you told me, like this person who in this setting tried to really kind of own the ways that he's been sexist and racist and whatever. I forget exactly what you said. Right. Um, I think it was that. And so um, I think in he's, he's kind of probably a little, you know, um, uh, amped up. And then I think the people hearing him, if they, if they asked like, what would you do if you were in a situation where a man was taking responsibility for things he's done in the past that he regrets? I imagine some of those people would say things like, I would do my best to be an empathetic listener, <laughs> you know, like, or I would really try to hold space and then give feedback. You know, I can imagine there are people in that room that would hope sure. that their response would be, you know, empathy and listening or like holding him to account or whatever. Um, and instead it sounds from what he experienced, it was like, he just kind of got shut out and, and like, at least in his perception, of in it. his perception of it. Right. right. Um, and I think really like when we're, when we're, when we're a little bit removed from the performative nature of all of these conversations, like who do, who do we think, who do we think we are when these things happen? Right? Like who is it that we imagine we will be as these conversations are happening? And are we actually doing that? And I think there's a huge like disparity between who we think we're going to be in this, right. in this greater conversation that's happening and in the individual ones that happen and who we actually are in the moment. And, and I think the other part of this is something that Marguerite, and she, I asked her where she got it and she couldn't remember, but just the idea of like, you know, we want a cookie for, for doing this work. Um, and anything short of a cookie is, you know, a slap in the face, like, like, or, you know, like, like not, and, and, and I, I have really thought about that in so many contexts on Twitter and other conversations, you know, like I am, I am working on myself. I am trying to put what I'm doing into action in tangible ways, such as, you know, what I'm doing with channel 253 or saying I don't want to be on a panel with all men or things like that. And there's that response where it's like, so give me a cookie for it. And <laughs> we, we don't deserve cookies for it. Um, and, but I think that, that that really does inform how I've been thinking about this too, because it's like, if, if we can understand that that's what we're looking for, it's like once Marguerite named that for me, it was easier for me to recognize I was looking for a cookie in this situation and I'm not going to get a cookie and that's okay. And so it made my response better in those situations, I guess. Um, so naming it, I think really helps because yeah, it's hard work and we want someone to say, good job, here's a cookie. Well, and I think like, um, I mean, I think that it depends on who we want the cookie from. Yes, that's true too. <laughs> you know that what I mean? That is very true too. Like it really depends on who we want the cookie from because um, like difficult, hard work, like dismantling all the systems of oppression that we have internalized is fucking hard and does require a lot of support and struggle. And we, we, it is not 
it is not abnormal or pathological to want um, to 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 benefit from recognition. That some for someone saying, "I see you. I see what you're doing." Um, well, so maybe, to, maybe that's maybe that's the response that maybe you were giving me cookies during that first. <laughs> You know, oh, like, that's, like this is my point, though. That is exactly yeah. my point. This is what I got stuck on. I was like, was I just giving him cookies because I can? Because he's not right. going to hurt me. I'm not afraid of him. I've got nothing right. to lose, uh, and 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 the doors are open, and we're having this really interesting conversation that I that I'm benefiting from. Maybe he's benefiting. From, I mean, you know, like, was do is it not my responsibility to give you cookies? I guess I could argue that only you should get cookies from men if you want cookies. But I think, you know what, I actually have the capacity because I don't have the capacity for all men that I know, but <laughs> you know, I, I can, there's a few I could handle giving cookies if they need it, like saying, I see you, I see what you're doing, well done, you know? And, and I also think though that it's something that's very difficult right now is like, what is our process for discerning what is, very normal, natural human behavior and what is problematic because I think it's a mistake to pathologize the desire to be liked. Like everybody wants to be liked. That is a super normal thing. We are creatures of connection. We desire and crave connection from the moment we are born. We, yep. we seek attachment. We want to see that a person cares about us and loves us and knows we're there. And so I don't think that that should be pathologized, particularly when one of the main things the patriarchy does is kind of strip men of their humanity and their desire for, you know, desire for connection. It forces them to hide it. And, 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 you know, so it gets kind of um, deformed and comes out in these really fucked up ways. So um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a mistake to pathologize the desire to be liked. So how do we like allow that it's a very natural human thing to want to be liked and, and also allow that, it is a is like sy symptomatic of white supremacy for white people to need to be seen as good, you know. I mean, you know, I think we all each have to have kind of an internal discernment process. How when when am I doing this and when am I doing this, you know? Right. Yeah. And I mean, the, it's very interesting watching everything happening in the states right now from a distance, like our tendency to talk about everything in broad strokes and just to make everything so um, this or that, you know, or just there, there's, it just feels like there's very little tolerance for um, nuance right now, understandably. And there are, you know, some places where nuance is not needed, but I think relationally speaking, like nuance is always better than not, um, which makes it really complicated to know. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I don't have any good answers for you, any of it. I mean, um, I, one of the things you know you're talking about and that you and Mark showing up to other men and part of the truth of it is, is that like, I am not in the company of just men very often. Um, I, 
I'm I I have a group of friends that uh, we get together and 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 play like games with every so often, largely a group of progressive. Um, and we do have these conversations, and I feel like they're productive and useful because like it is, it is four to five white men, who who are talking about these things, and I think that that is really important because th those do feel like honest conversations where we're talking through some of the these things with the with the people who can change it. Um, at the same time, like four or five years ago, I was in a work situation um, that, and I have many different jobs and so it doesn't matter which work situation it is, but um, you know, where one of the three white men in a room and one of them had just gotten a picture from his girlfriend who was trying to get him to come over and he, you know, showed the picture that he, that he had sent or oh that she had God. sent. And I didn't say anything. I didn't say, keep that to yourself. You know, I, you know, it was, and there was no, like, if I really think about it, honestly, I wouldn't have lost any, um, on, the only thing I had to lose was embarrassment and social stuff. Like, like what? There wasn't anything else besides that that I would have truly lost, and yet I still didn't do it. Um, so I hadn't thought about that until just bringing that up. The, so even I guess what I'm like, I have a group of friends that we can have those conversations. But you put me in a situation where there isn't that trust and and I'm I'm not participating the way that I would have told you beforehand that I would right exactly use that right. same yeah yeah and and you know I'm sure you tell yourself that if ever presented with that again you would respond differently but um, and I'm sure you hope that and really believe that but really like until it happens again you won't know I won't know right yeah I mean, will I, will I actually say something to the guy who's a jerk to the server or will I, I, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think there is this interesting thing that happens talking about like speaking in broad strokes that often I find, I'm just going to say like progressive white liberals like myself, um, that when we talk about patriarchy, we, um, we privilege the, the damage that it causes to women, understandably, um, in a way that excludes um, making room for the damage that it does to men. And I think what's very interesting about that though, is that those of us who have children who have sons, if we just think about our sons, then like we see, I mean, I'm a great example. Like 
I see very clearly my son is exactly at the age where, according to a lot of research, like he's getting his first induction into the patriarchy. Like it's just finishing right now around eight. And then his second one will be when he hits adolescence. So like he's, he is now at eight years old, like very aware of certain realities of what it means to be a male child in the world. And he is aware of when he can be his like tender cuddly little schmoopy self and when he has to put on the armor to go out into the world and it's all unspoken you know and i think that i had you know you have a son who's a few years younger than mine so he's not quite there yet he's five yeah so i had this idea you know and for girls it happens later i really had this idea that if if our home were different and if i were different that somehow I would be able to protect him from that or that he would have some special kind of armor. And something that I'm coming to terms with very painfully is that actually all I can do is give him a safe place to always be his tender little schmoopy self. Um, And there's nothing I can do because the patriarchy exists and it is real and it is the dominant system by which society organizes itself. And, you know, along with capitalism, which is, you know, they're two, two sides of the same coin. Um, and like, it would be impossible for him to not get inculcated into it to some extent. Like what he has that maybe other children don't have is he has like an opposing view or system in place, you know, when he comes home, but he has already been fully indoctrinated. And that doesn't mean that I, that he believes that boys and girls are are inherently different. It doesn't mean that he thinks boys are better than girls. I don't mean that. What I mean is he is, he's not thinking about it in terms of him in relation to girls. His understanding of it is about him in relation to other boys. And so like what he's learning now is who he has to be in order to maintain, you know, the friendship and respect of other boys. And it is, it has been one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever witnessed in my life. And it's so hard like knowing how to navigate it and how to talk about it with him. And so like in my perspective as mother, when I see my son, I see very clearly how he is, um, you know, he's a victim of this horrific system (laughs) that we're all propping up. I don't see him as anything other than a victim, even though I know that it is going to benefit him throughout his entire life at some point. And um, like seeing the, I mean, it really, it just feels like he's being robbed of his innocence. I mean, these are all words that I would use to describe also what the patriarchy does to girls, you know, like he's kind of like robbed of this, yeah, innocence, this, this um, comfort in just being whatever and whoever he is anywhere he goes in the world. And my, my son at five definitely has plenty of that innocence still. Like I still remember I mean, it was only this summer we were picking him up from daycare and he tells his friend, you know, his friend shouts, you know, I love you. Another guy, another uh, boy, also five. And my son shouts back, I love you more. And mm-hmm. then the third boy nearby, um, <laughs> I guess felt excluded, is like, I love both of you, you know, something like that. Like yeah. one of those situations. Um, and that's almost impossible to imagine happening, you know, at 
seven or eight in, in my head. And so I, I, but at the same time, I mean, like I can already see it happening where, you know, like, like he, he is more sensitive to colors than before. Although last night Mary let him dye the, the front tufts of his hair purple, um, mm. which he was very happy about. Um, he talks about having crushes on boys right now and girls, um, which I think just to him means like he loves spending time with them and like they're yeah. super close to him. And so I can see that on the parts where it's like he is just who he is. And then I can see the other things where, um, where he is learning things that it's like, I, I don't know where, where to combat that, you know, that, that like, he, he, you know, it's, it's not, it's not that bad yet. Like, you know, he still wants to get his fingernails painted. Um, but he used to dress up in a princess dress whenever his older sister did. And that hasn't happened in a while. Although she hasn't either recently now that I think about it. But I guess what I'm saying is, is like, I can see this progression happening and I, I don't like what you're saying that like I'm not sure that I can do anything about it um except to offer you know offer counter arguments and hope that that as he grows up is always in his head um I think what's been most excruciating about it is to observe that all the things he used to love as a five-year-old like bright colors and yeah having his nails painted and wearing dresses he still loves those things, right. but he is—he will no longer allow himself to do them, and that is—that is not coming from here. You know, that's not coming from home, right? Of course. And um, and it's not coming from his own desire. It's coming from some externally, you know, um, uh, what's that word? Externally um, enforced system, and. Um, you know, I think about when I was a kid, you know, my mom, we were a very different family and the excruciating pain of being very different from other kids and, and, um, and my mom kind of forcing me to be different yeah. um, and not allowing me to do whatever it was that I felt I needed to do to fit in and to have, have mind acceptance. And so, you know, there's a part of me with, when all this stuff starts surfacing that wants to be like, that's not who we are. This is, you know, but I also see that this is a child seeking connection. And yep. the reality is in the world that he lives in and operates in every day where I'm not there, this, the cost of connection for boys and men is to deny something very specific about who they are. The cost of connection for girls and women to is to deny something very specific and true about what they know and who they are. And so when I think of it in that way, I see how um, there's, there's this, the, the wrong that's done is the same. It manifests in very different ways as kids age. Um, the harm done to women is inarguably worse than the harm done to men. Um, Definitely. And that doesn't mean that the harm done to men is not real and not heartbreaking. And so, um, again, going back to my, my, my previous thing about, you know, recognizing that as a white woman, very adjacent to power, um, 
who sees that, like, what is my role? What am I supposed to do? Not like, what are women supposed to do? Not what are like we supposed to do, but like me personally, what am I supposed to do considering this perspective that I hold and I think is accurate for me? Um, like, what is my role and, and, and how is it going to affect the way that I relate and interact with, you know, the people that I know and, and love and don't love, you know, and see right. whose ears I have. Um, I don't, I don't know if this is useful or meaningful, but, but I've been trying to, with both of our kids, like to really, you, you know, talk about like being brave and things like that, because all the things that we're talking about, I mean, it's so fear-based, you know, every single thing that we've talked about is, it comes down to like fear of the, the stigma, the social situation, the awkwardness, and it's something I need to be clearly thinking about myself as well as like um, being brave, like like being being willing to, uh, in the case of like my kids, being willing to, you know, go talk to the friend who's feeling left out to include them, things like that. But and for me to actually speak up in those situations, um, yeah, that's that that's that's one of the ways that I've been trying to without going into like all this detail, like give them the skills that will allow them hopefully to be willing to like want to get their nails painted in my son's case or whatever it is. Um, I don't know. Well, I think what's really challenging about it is that, um, you know, we of course like imbue our children as best we can with all of these, like to be brave and strong and fierce and smart and, you know, you know, um, to be inclusive, to be kind, to be generous. <clears throat> and, you know, we of course model that as best we can and we hope they take it up. But, but we also are all living in and supporting a system that actually asks them to be the opposite of that. So it's like, I think we, I think the flaw that I see in the way that I saw things until this last year is that I believed that, and this is gonna sound in direct contradiction to what I just said about what's my role personally, but like, I, I, can't, I can't expect my son or my daughter to um, perceive what is happening as an, as an I can't make it about their individual choices um, only. Like, am I making sense? I can teach them to be kind and generous and inclusive and thoughtful right. and to see, um, you know, to, to really point out to them racism, you know, to make sure they understand the realities of the world, you know, to, to be aware of their privilege, to be aware of as best, you know, as age appropriate. I can teach them all of that. I'm still sending them every day into a system that um, requires them to either pretend they don't know those things or hide what they know or keep it to themselves in order to have some form of connection. And, and this, this, I guess, touches on something that, that I will just be honest about. Like, I don't, I don't know what 
the world would have to do to get past a patriarchal system. Like, I, I don't know what that looks like, what the end state looks like, and I don't know how to get there, really. And so there is a certain sense of, of like, well, I can work on myself and I can work on my kids. Um, but I don't know what, what, I don't know what minor drop in the bucket I'm doing. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, wow, what a depressing, horrible thought. I know. Like, you just made me really sad. <laughs> um, well, I mean, like I could say, you know, like if we all just do a little bit, but no. That's no, not that's a, not the truth. Yeah, that's no. not going to help climate and that's not going to help other things. I mean, I think part of what I found so compelling about this book, Why Does Patriarchy Persist, is because it really was like, okay, so why does this, we, we all know this is bad. We know this is not working for the majority. We know that very few people benefit from this. We know it causes harm. Why does it keep happening? And, you know, it's a very clever system and that the way it replicates itself is to make it, is to make it so it's very difficult to, uh, the, the cost of stepping out of it is so high that you just accidentally, whether you mean to or not, keep replicating it, right? Um, and can you step out of it? Well, I mean, just, I mean you know, like... I, I guess I will say that that's what I was going to say is like, if I, if I can see very clearly that the only thing I can do for my children is, you know, be, be an opposing narrative, right? Like give them, offer them, an, offer them another narrative, offer them another reality, right? Give them a safe place to make sure, make sure they have a safe place where they, so they don't forget who they are. Cause I mean, I think about how many, how many people, keep the system going because you know in their home they also had to keep it going right like there was no safe place for them to for girls to know what they know and for boys to to feel what they feel right so so be a safe place for them to do that um offer them you know another another narrative um but i can't expect them to um to you know, go out into the world and not get caught up in the dominant system. So I guess what I, what I, what I, the conclusion I come to then is if every adult I run into is someone who is also dealing with the same thing, I mean, maybe they don't have an, an alternate narrative. Maybe they, they, they um, don't have a safe place to not be that. So what, how do, how do we make it how do we treat each other like we're raising each other? Do you know what I'm saying? I guess that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I don't know that that, I think the answer isn't in yelling at each other. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> not that there's not cause for yelling uh, or reasons for it, but I think like telling a kid to be brave and strong is not gonna help them be brave and strong. And telling a kid to, to not want to paint their nails is not gonna make them not wanna paint their nails. It's just gonna make them not tell you they wanna paint your nails, right? So like kind of, we know this about children. We know this about children and we know that this system is something that we are, we are indoctrinated into as children. And yet we have this expectation that all these adults who have been raised in the same water and indoctrinated the same way are gonna have these capacities that we would never expect of children, but we're all- Having, having kids has given me 
has made me look at adults as we are all just like five-year-olds with more social skills. I mean, like, like I really do in now see the toddler cases. and <laughs> like, like it's having that experience of trying to parent a child makes me now see how many situations at work or so, you know, whatever it is, um, are situations where it's, it's like someone's inner five-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you're right. The, the, that like maybe we need to be approaching them in the same way that we do with with children. Because I don't mean obviously like in a paternalistic, you know. I understand what you mean. Demeaning way, yeah. but I but I think like so so like to your point earlier. Yes, I I could say to you, yeah, suck it up, Buttercup, and you say this is really hard to figure out as a man what I'm supposed to do. I could say to you, suck it up, Buttercup, uh, but I wouldn't say that to my son if he came to me and was like, and of course you're not my son. But what I mean is like. I wouldn't say to my son who I see as a person who um, is in the process of being indoctrinated into a system that I find repulsive. And I also understand that for him to, um, you know, get by in the world, he is going to have to go along with parts of it. Um, And I can just give him as many tools as I can for him to figure out what he can and cannot tolerate and how he's going to subvert it. And, you know, like it's, Meaning that it's very complicated. It's not just a matter of saying, you go to school and you tell every boy who says that blue is a boy color that they're wrong. And, you know, like, <laughs> that would be so unproductive and also not like it makes his entire life about a crusade and not about him kind of. Your crusade, too. My crusade, too, exactly, right? And not about him kind of experiencing what it is and and sorting out for himself like who he wants to be in it and yeah that's not that alone is not going to topple the system but what would happen if if we were all like um allowed to say like this thing exists it replicates itself over and over again i have to make some very specific choices about how i'm going to exist in it and what i'm going to do um rather than just believe that the only acceptable response is to either ignore it or um, pretend as though we can abandon it. I mean, I think your question is right. Like when we, what, what is exactly is it that we want from people? Do we want them to just be like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to participate in patriarchy. Like, right. like good luck. Where are you going to go live? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I hope, I hope, that things are moving the right way. And this gets back to the performative stuff and the language stuff. Like, um, so since since you moved to Germany, how, two years, three years? I mean, we're in our third year. It's been two years third? and some months, yeah. Wow. I feel like, for example, it has become here in the Puget Sound area significantly more common for a land acknowledgement at uh, openings and, you know, at my work, we did a land acknowledgement. This is, you know, when we had a grand opening of our new, of our new building. Um, but it's, it's part way. It's like, it's like, you know, we want to acknowledge that this land was originally Puyallup land. Um, where the true land acknowledgement is that this land was stolen from the Puyallups. And and you know, respectable organizations, quote unquote, will do the, you know, the this was once you know 
native land and we want to recognize that. Um, that's, that's like the cop out. But I also have to think that you do that long enough and people will get used to it, that then the stolen part will start coming into it. And then at some point, someone's going to have to do something about it. I mean, th this is where, this is where I do have optimism in the sense that like you get these things in motion and then the internal logic of them just starts moving it forward, maybe slower than everyone would like. But I really do think that like once you, once like you start doing this regularly, then the next one is, well, we should acknowledge that it's stolen. The next one should be, we should figure out what we do about that. Like, I do think that that process happens just to use that one example of like, um, with, with uh, uh, Native American land. So I do have hope. It's just, that it's also like, you know, I couldn't tell you when I, you know, is that my lifetime? Is that, uh, um, you know, seven generations from now, I don't know. Um, but I can see these things changing and happening um, in a way that gives me a lot of hope, generally. Um, and I wanna be working toward that. But at the same time, then I look at the mag, mag, what's the word I'm looking for? Magnitude. Magnitude of the problem. And it's really hard to, again, see it's hard to see the, the other side, but I have also have a feeling sometimes these things just kind of happen all at once. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I know you've said it like three times. Language is tricky. Like using your example there, I agree with you that, uh, that when I'm right when the impeachment hearing started a few weeks ago, there was this uh, psychology professor who wrote into the New York Times like a little letter to the editor, and he was saying that like. <clears throat> if Democrats keep saying that President Trump abused the power of his office to influence a foreign government to interfere in our elections for his personal gain, we are going to lose. What they should be saying over and over again is Trump is a cheat. He's cheated his whole life and he's cheating now. And that is what they should repeat over and 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 over again. Because if they repeat it enough times, that will be the story and that is what people will be repeating. And you can't give these complicated you just have to say and so to your point like if we always refer to the native land as stolen right. we are on native stolen native land and we repeat it enough times it will eventually become what is accepted and it will like incrementally over time make a difference the other thing that happens with language though is that for i think the vast majority certainly of liberals and i'll just say people like, and, and this certainly goes to the conversation we're having is, and this is where I see a lot of men get stuck. And a lot of women also, uh, not, just men, not just men, but I'm, it, it, as it relates to our conversation, I see this is where a lot of people get stuck, is that there's this belief that by simply acknowledging the wrong, that like the work is done, right? So right. the problem is that when, when it becomes, when it becomes, um, you know, to be a good progressive, you have to do a land acknowledgement, whether you say stolen or not. Well, then you get credit for doing something, right? Yes. And you actually don't think. <laughs> well, and I mean, you are, you are, you know, bringing up language that will eventually over time make a huge difference. But the reality is like, until the land is given back, 
it doesn't matter, right? Like until the land is returned or until there is, you know. Yeah. Because of my role on the Metro Parks Board, um, I was in conversation with a member of the Puyallup Tribal Council. Um, and and we we were uh, spent a little while spent some time together and we were talking about different things and I was asking about like their new casino that they're building and she said something to me that I had never heard like explicitly stated but she said you know the goal of the tribe is to like reclaim all of their ancestral lands mm-hmm. and um, you know they have when you get a giant casino that doesn't have to pay. Uh, state or federal taxes or city taxes and it's just you know going to be a behemoth of a money maker um, they actually have the capacity where they could start <laughs> I mean they don't even have to be given the land back they could start just buying, buying it, it. Um, and and it was so interesting to think about first of all what would it be like to hear you know if if if, if everyone in let's just say Tacoma, since that's where I am, knew that they lived on land that the Puyallup tribe eventually wanted to buy back or have given back to them. I think a lot of people would be really, really upset by that. I think that it would really shock a lot of people. People who very happily do land acknowledgements. People who very happily do land acknowledgements. and I mean, you know, I went to, you know, so, so one of the things that does happen, like, like if the, if the Puyallup tribe owns something, um, even if it's not on the historical reservation, it becomes part of the reservation. Um, and, and, you know, it becomes no longer taxable. And like, like my head also went to like, what happens, you know, in 50 years when the, the tribe owns a significant portion of Tacoma and Tacoma suddenly like, wait a minute, like, like we don't, I, like, like it's, it's going to be a fascinating change um but it's also a real one i mean like like that is a situation where they have the money they have the resources and they're starting and the land acknowledgements are setting up a path where people will start to think about it even more and more what's going to happen like like it's it's going to be really interesting um to see when that uh a white supremacist culture is dealing with a tribe that has hundreds of millions of dollars and also the moral right on their side. Um, I don't well, know. But, but I think let's be honest that it will, it will matter more that they have the money. Like yeah. that's what I think is really fascinating. And, and I, and I think speaks to my point about where we get stuck, which is that the majority of people doing land acknowledgements, part of the reason they think that once they've done the acknowledgement, they've done enough is because it is not even within their, their consciousness that at some point the land could be returned or taken back or purchased, right? And and the other reality is that for many many tribes across the country, they would they would never have the ability to do that, right? No, so, because most of them are not like located in an urban area with a deep exactly. water port that you yeah, know, like so yeah. The, the Puyallup tribe is extremely unique in its situating. So we you absolutely. Know, it's like, so so there's this thing where we get stuck because we say, okay, I know what happened is wrong. Um, I know that something needs to be done. I'm going to acknowledge what's wrong. And then, and then I think where we get stuck is that we know that they're, like the reality of land being returned to Native peoples is really quite low. And you know, the, the, the likelihood of that happening across the country is very low, right? There's, there's a, a, a movement in Seattle called uh, Rent, Rent Duwamish, or 
but basically it's like people who live in historic Duwamish lands. There's a website where you can go and you can pay in addition to your, let's say your rent for your apartment, you can pay a monthly rent on top of that to the Duwamish tribe, which I think is a fascinating, uh, again, these, these are the kinds of things where like I think about them and I see them and it's like, things are changing. But, but this gets to the capitalism side of things too. You know, like, like is, it, is, it, is it a full on change? Is it a sea change or is it just, I don't know, will money corrupt that too? Well, I think, I think too, because it's not really a reality that most, you know, colonizer, you know, um, you know, uh, descendants of colonizers really imagine, even the ones who believe we need to acknowledge where we are, they don't imagine that at some point where they live may no longer be a place they can live or that land may not be available to them, right? And so there's this feeling of like, there's actually nothing I can do to fix it. So I'm just going to kind of acknowledge it. It's going to be uncomfortable. Uh, and then I'm going to do all these other things to try to make up for it. And I think that is the, the exact place that a lot of like good men like you and like other good men, I'm using air quotes. I'm not saying you're not a good man, but you know, like I understand. get caught is like, you know, you're someone who understands the harm the patriarchy is doing. You understand that you benefit from it. You understand you've participated in it. You also know that you have to acknowledge all the things you've done wrong. And you also know that no amount of acknowledging is gonna, is gonna fix it. And so, and so instead of like going into, deeper into that discomfort and pain together, what we do is we do this performance about how we're gonna talk about it in productive ways that I think do move the conversation forward eventually over time, but actually don't do the thing that needs to happen, which is like, we need to be in, in relationship in a way where I get to know what I know and you get to feel what you feel because that's what the patriarchy robs us of. I'm supposed to pretend right. I don't know things I know and you're supposed to pretend you don't feel things you feel. And like, right. um, yeah, I, I guess just to say that all the incrementalism that is good long-term, I think in the short term tends to kind of, um, or can kind of inhibit the progress that could be possible. We just, I think we just get into this really stuck place. Yeah. I think to sum up what I'm trying to say is that what I'm so grateful about our last conversation is that and for me, it sparked like very interesting um, assessment of my own internal process, like how I'm engaging in these conversations, how I wanna be engaging also like who do i have the energy to engage with with this level of integrity because i think i think that before our conversation i felt very strongly that it was my responsibility to speak up in any situation at any time and um <clears throat> never have any excuse for why i didn't and now i just want to give myself all the excuses in the world no <laughs> <laughs> um and now, like, what I feel is, yes, that is the ideal to which I am. I, I do hope that I will always be someone who speaks up whenever and uses whatever privilege and power I have to say the right thing in the right moment and know what to do. And I also want to operate at a level of integrity that I can maintain and that I want to be, like, um, I want to be able to correctly assess what the cost is to me. Um, 
both ways. Like if the cost yes. feels too high, I can, I can allow that that is what it is, but if, but I also not overestimate the cost to me, you know, which and, is the, the, the usual temptation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think for people like us, a hundred percent, you know? Yeah. I, I think, I think I definitely took a, uh, I, I, it made me think of, of performative nature, the pros and the, the, the few pros, but also the way that that can be, um, just, just, you know, like how people will, I'll just say this now and I don't actually have to change anything. Um, so it definitely made me think about that. And, and I think this conversation made me start to think about, um, the, the, not just the, like, I can say, well, you know, look at what I'm doing with channel two, five, three, or look at what I'm doing here, but like, the actual human relational one-on-one it's really got to be where I really think about next. Like, like it, it's not good enough to just put these things out into the world. Um, it's got to be in those rooms, in those situations, in that moment, um, being, being willing enough and brave enough to say something. Um, and to show other men that, you know, I can do that, that you can do that without like everything falling apart. Um, I don't know. That's kind of where I'm, where my head's now going after this. Yeah. <clears throat> I think too, like, <clears throat> what I feel really curious about hearing you say that is, um, the, the, yeah, what is, as per what I just said about um, how we kind of inadvertently kind of recreate and replicate the very things that we, that we know are, are problematic. So I know for myself, like, it's very important for me when I talk about speaking up that I don't imagine it, I don't envision it as me <clears throat> Even the phrase speaking truth to power, which, you know, is a, is a very useful and legitimate phrase. But if I think of, okay, it's my duty to speak truth to power. I, I am setting myself up to be kind of combative. That's me personally. That's just how those words impact me. Whereas I think of, I think of okay, in these situations, how am I going to like genuinely connect? How am I going to create a connection that will facilitate like a, a mutual transformation. And obviously like one is much harder than the other. Yeah. But I think it's so easy to justify the former. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, if I wanted to justify the former, I could, I could find all sorts of language and excuses to do that. Um, but it's just not how I, it's not how I'm feeling called to show up right now. Yeah. And, um, and I, 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 I feel just very clearly that it's, it's not <clears throat> the speaking truth to power does produce change over time, um, in the broader sense. And I think in the moment to moment, like human interactions that happen every day, um, seeking connection and mutual transformation it can be immediate you know, 
before we started recording, I, I swore I was going to bring up your amazing hair. I just, as a way of ending the podcast, <laughs> since we didn't get to it, I just, I need to tell our listeners, A, I'm going to post a new picture of you that shows your glorious hair. But B, like, I feel bad for people who can't see your hair. I mean, now I can't see it because the video is off. <laughs> Eric's got some really <laughs> remarkable hair that I seriously, um, I just learned the, 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 what the cool kids are saying now, I stand something. I stand your hair. Is that am I using that correctly? I'm. I don't know because I have not heard anyone cool or not use that. So. Oh, you haven't. I stand you. I think it means I. I'm. I'm stalking slash fanning, fangirling over you. <clears throat> but I stand your hair. I every time when there's a picture on Instagram that includes your hair, I just admire it for longer than one would think. It's the well, color, it's the texture, it's the floppiness, it's the amount of it. It's just beautiful. And I can't wait to post wow. a picture of your new hair. I mean, it's your old hair. It's your hair you've always had. Well, now I, I'm excited. I, I'm excited for you to post it. And yeah. It's really something to write home about that hair. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't think of a Thank better you. way to end the podcast than on your beautiful locks. Thank you, man. <laughs> Good <you>. conversation. <laughs> and and I hope I hope that there is more feedback from people and we can keep processing. Yes, me too. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And there you have it. Episode eight of Grief Bacon. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.